8.7%. That's the final number for the Social Security cost of living adjustment for 2023. SSA announced the COLA after the latest inflation figures came out. Monthly benefits will increase by more than $140 on average starting in January. But not all federal retirees will see that much. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with the details. And, Drew, let's start with the COLA overall. That's pretty big compared to recent years, isn't it? It is definitely very big, Tom. Even just this year for 2022, the COLA was relatively high at 5.9%, but the 8.7 number just even dwarfs that in comparison. And if you go a little further back, the last highest COLA we saw around there was 5.8% in 2009. But if you want to see something that's anywhere close to this 8.7%, you have to go back over 40 years. Back in the early 80s, there were a couple of years where the COLA was over 10%, but it's not something that we've seen anywhere close until now since the early 80s. Yes, well, I wasn't retired in 40 years ago, but I did get a mortgage then, and we were thrilled to find a mortgage for only 13%. So, yeah, inflation has visited the country in decades past, and we don't know how high or how long it's going to go this time. So it's probably no surprise that people that watch these things that the number is so high, that that COLA. Right. It's, you know, these the cost of living, the consumer prices, inflation, it's all been increasing over the past several months in the past year. So if you've been following the index that the COLA is based on, it's been hovering around that number for at least the past couple of months. Some months it was up even higher, but it's what we've kind of been expecting. The 8.7% number is, and a lot of those increases are attributed to shelter, food, medical care increases, but it's something that, you know, it's it wasn't a huge surprise given the, the context here. And just as an aside, with open season approaching in another month or so, less than a month, as you've reported, the premiums for federal health care plans, those are also going up, not quite 8.7 percent, but a pretty healthy jump that most feds yeah. and retirees can expect. Yeah, on on average, it's going up uh, 7.2 percent, but it actually is the exact same, same number for the enrollees' premium rates share for their share to increase 8.7% to the FEHB and the government's share at 6.6%. So that's another large increase. And combined, that's something that is kind of causing concern for federal advocacy groups who say that it kind of maybe diminishes the the value of the COLA. Well, yeah, we're all in the same boat dollar-wise, I guess. It's pretty hard to escape. And who exactly gets the COLA? in retirees? Everybody across the board, or how does it fall out? So it goes to Social Security recipients, federal and military retirees. And essentially, the the purpose is to keep monthly retirement payouts on pace with the rates of inflation, which is something that continually increases. And of course, this year increased more than it has been. Without the COLA, the value of these retirement funds would very quickly diminish. So they're calculated based on essentially the past couple of months using the what's called the consumer price index for urban wage earners and clerical workers. Essentially, you know, it's a bit of a mouthful, but they're kind of comparing what those what that index looks like over the past three months compared to 2021 or last year, and then determining determining the COLA based on that. There's kind of a market basket that they use of goods and services, and that's what the COLA is based on. Exactly. Yes. Now, not every federal retiree is going to see the full 8.7 percent. Who won't and why not? 
So basically, there are two retirement systems in the federal government. There's the Civil Service Retirement System, or SERS, and then the Federal Employee Retirement System called FERS. It's something that changed during the kind of mid-1980s. And the system that you are on depends on when you joined government service. Those who joined later in the FERS system actually get a usually lower COLA, but it depends on the actual size of the COLA itself. So if it increases, the full COLA increases less than 2%, FERS retirees will receive the full COLA. But once it gets beyond that, increasing between 2 and 3%, they'll receive just the 2% COLA. And if the full COLA increases more than 3%, which is, of course, we're way beyond that this year at the 8.7%, FERS retirees receive 1% less. So they'll be receiving a 7.7% COLA starting in 2023. And the theory behind that is they also have an annuity from the federal government, and that is cost of living adjusted to some degree also, correct? Right. So you have the FERS retirees as kind of a three-pronged approach. So with each piece offering a slightly smaller amount, you have the government pension, You have the thrift savings plan and you have social security, whereas SERS just has the pension. So that's kind of the reason behind the slightly lower COLA for FERS retirees. Right. And SERS retirees, unless they worked in the private sector beyond their federal service, they do not get social security. And it wasn't deducted from their paychecks, but they have that full-sized pension that is still cost of living adjusted. Exactly. So that's kind of why they, they changed the system and why they rationalize the slightly lower COLA for FERS retirees there. And getting back to those FERS retirees then, are there plans? I mean, this comes up from time to time, especially when there is a big COLA, to change the calculus for FERS retirees. Is that coming up again now? Yeah, this is something that definitely has a lot of ongoing conversation. Many federal advocacy groups, such as NARF, they kind of disapprove of this reduced COLA for FERS retirees. They say it, you know, is is a disparity that is unfair to those who are on that retirement system. But the there is some legislation that we're tracking that's kind of related to this. It's called the Equal COLA Act. And essentially it would bring the FERS retirees up to that full COLA amount. It's something that it was introduced in both the House and the Senate this year, but um, and it's also been introduced Similar legislation has been introduced in the past several years, but it's something that has never actually cleared Congress. So it's something that is advocated for, but never really come to fruition. Right, because there was a rationale for the lower COLA and the lower raises in the uh, Social Security benefit each year, and the rationale really didn't change that much. I guess they just want to be nice, and and maybe those that are advocating this. Any other COLA-related legislation you were watching here? Because these things come and go, you know, especially in inflationary times. Yeah. So the Equal COLA Act is one piece of it, but the Fair COLA for Seniors Act is another piece of legislation attacking a slightly different but related issue. So that in that case, the act would make future COLAs based on a different index. So rather than the CPIW, it it would be based on the Consumer Price Index E. Both of those track consumer costs, but the CPIE places some greater weight on healthcare costs. So in theory, that would actually lead to a higher COLA for retirees since seniors are larger users of healthcare benefits. Yeah, that's difficult to calculate those things because it varies regionally too. Like if you based it on energy prices, well, if you're in California, they're way sky high compared to where they might be in other states, Texas or Florida. And Healthcare costs might be doing the opposite in some other regions. So 
at some point they've got to average all of this. And I guess it's you pick your averages that you're going to go after. And federal advocacy groups pretty much across the board are looking for these changes. Yeah, I think that the Equal Cola Act or similar legislation to that, essentially the first retirees bringing them up to the full cola amount, that's the thing that's on most of their uh, agendas or what they're kind of trying to push for here. That's the biggest piece of it. But there's a couple other things to follow as well, like the, you know, looking at the different types of indices that could be covered within it. And always the colas are chasing the inflation. So it feels like people are always behind, doesn't it? Right. It's, it's, uh, you know, it changes every year. It's interesting that it is so high this year. So we'll kind of have to see how it looks in future years as well. And if it continues on this trend. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thank you. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say 
there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? 
And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups, you might get this experience. But really, where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. 